You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Warrnambool Botanic Gardens are situated three hours west of Melbourne and are full of design and maintenance principles that we can all learn from to become better gardeners. In this episode, the head gardener John Shearley helps us understand why the gardens work so well, and he initiates us into his horticultural philosophy of curvy lines. G'day John, welcome to the show mate. Thanks Daniel, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, it's going to be a cracking episode, so I guess let's kick this episode off by, I might get you to describe the size of the gardens and maybe give us a bit of a brief overview of the different sections and microclimates you have going on. Yeah, okay, I'd love to. So it's Warrnambool Botanic Gardens and we're 20 acres, which I believe equates to about eight hectares. The gardens are 155 years old and they're a Guilfoyle garden, which gives us some credibility in the, uh, the Nerdville designing world. So pretty happy about that. It's a sloping sort of site, so that gives us variations in terms of our drainage and what we can grow and, and what plant species we have. We're fortunate, though, with such a historic landscape that a lot of the trees are already established and the framework has, has been put in for us. But with the plus also comes the minus when we're managing mature to over-mature trees. So I'd like to think that rather than maintaining the gardens, we're actually managing the gardens and managing this mm-hmm. heritage landscape which I think is an important position to have. We're, we're fortunate too to have a, a pinetum in the western area of the gardens, which we sort of treat as separate to the main gardens. So it, it's, a, it's an area that displays and houses just pine or coniferous species. And again, that's, that's a very old part of the gardens and is unusual to have that sectioned off. So we've got large shrub beds and we've got open lawn areas as well. So got a little bit of water you can either call it a lake or a pond depending on your uh, on your views but yeah we we've we're, we're very fortunate in terms of the the size of the site and the the variable things that we can grow in it mm. and you've been there for quite a few years running the garden haven't you yeah i've just nearly completed my 15th year so which is a, a world record for me i'm normally a three and a halfer and i move on to other things but uh <laughs> It's sort of, you can't say the climate's grabbed me, but certainly the gardens have, have grabbed me and history shows that a lot of curators of the gardens sort of stay for, for 30 odd years. So there's a lot of pressure to, uh, to conform. <laughs> so what do you reckon? You're going to stick around for another 15 or? Uh, I'm always looking actually. I, I, and I'm honest about this in terms of, I, I do go for other jobs just for, I guess, to, to tick a box that I'm still relevant, I guess. And also, it's always nice to see what else is out there to test yourself and, and yeah, update the CV occasionally. But yeah, I've got no hard desire to leave. I, I really enjoy my job and I'm passionate about, about Warnable Botanic Gardens. Mm, absolutely. And that comes through on your Twitter account as well, because we are mutual followers. But I just wanted to speak with you about some of the history there, because it is a really old site and you've got some pretty spectacular trees with a lot of heritage there. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's yeah. We're very fortunate that it is it is a, a historic landscape. So as I said before, it's a, it's 155 years old. And I should note that the council who manages this garden does come in for a lot of flack in terms of you know it's easy to bash a council, but they've actively managed this gardens for 155 years, and and we're fortunate it hasn't been bastardised in terms of 
caravan parks or sectioned areas off for, for barbecues and things like that. It's it's a designated landscape for, for plants and trees. So kudos to Warrnambool City Council. Mm, absolutely. So one of the trees that really sort of grabbed me was one that had a nice story to it. So it's one of the descendants of the Lone Pine. Can you tell us a little bit about that tree? Yeah, certainly. So our Lone Pine was was planted in 1934. There's still the original plaque there. And it was a seedling which was brought back in a cone from the First World War. So it, it was locally stored. So it was stored in Grassmere, which isn't too far away from Warrnambool, allegedly on a mantelpiece and uh, sat there for quite a few years before the, they decided to sow the seeds. And there was four seedlings which originated from that original cone. Uh, one came to Warrnambool, one came to the Sisters, one went to the Shrine of Remembrance and the other one is in Waddle Park and there's only two remaining. So that's Warrnambool and Waddle Park. So it, it's a very significant planting for many reasons. And I suppose that the cones coming off the Warrnambool Lone Pine will be saved as well? Yeah, we, we've certainly harvested some seeds, um, propagated some seeds. We've we've replicated that planting in the Pine Edom as well. So we've got two younger Lone Pines in the Pine Edom and also the Friends of the Gardens who are integral in terms of the success of the gardens have also offered some of the additional sort of seedlings off to, to other gardens and, and other areas. So yeah, it's, we're, we're happy to share that where we can. It's not the easiest plant to propagate. Uh, it can be a bit temperamental at times. But, and we're, we're fortunate that ours is in fairly good nick. And we've, we had a little bit of tree work done on it probably four years ago. Very selective pruning and obviously done by a high-class arborist. And any wood that was taken out, friends actually got that turned into some pens. So they made some lone pine oh, pens. That's so cool. It was, yeah, it was fantastic. So it was a great reuse repurpose of of the timber and it can go a long way too because you can make a lot of pens out or pencils oh out yeah of the, yeah yeah <laughs> definitely wood. maybe make one table but <laughs> <laughs> that was a great idea of the friends so yeah it was fantastic so what sort of soil do you have going on there and what do you do or not do to amend it yeah we've probably got overall you'd classify it as a bit of a sandy loam as i said before it's a sloping site so there is some variability in that we do have a few floaters a bit of rock floating around in certain areas but yeah overall i'd I'd classify it as a sandy loam which is fantastic in terms of drainage we don't have that heavy clay problem which which can be troublesome with growing some species of plants and in terms of amelioration of the soil we don't do a great deal at all really maybe some slow release fertilizer but in terms of yeah other other sort of works a bit of organic matter in our display beds but in our larger shrub beds it's it's pretty much mulching those mm. and we don't fiddle with the soil too much at all just sort of right plant right place and just let them go yeah yeah we'd like to think we're yeah we're tailoring sort of the plants into the right locations and the and the right exposure and the right soil and and the right moisture content so look, about a week ago, it might have been a little bit longer than a week, but we had some serious gale force winds in Victoria. How did you guys go in the garden? Like, was there anything that failed or did everything do pretty well or what went on there? Yeah, we were fortunate, really. We, we've got the usual suspects that, that let go. So a lot of our canary island pines, it's a good cleansing for them to get rid of a few dead palm fronds. Mm. A little bit of material from the poplar, which again, sort of is a bit of a serial offender. Fortunately, nothing catastrophic, so no complete tree failures or anything like that. All in all, I think we had about six ute loads of material that we, we took away for, for composting. So we were, we were fairly fortunate. So, 
yeah, it, uh, it normally takes probably a good day to clean up after a, a storm event like that, particularly with mm. the higher winds. It's very fortunate. Yeah, absolutely. And my wife, Kirsty, and I came around to the gardens last weekend and sort of had a poke around and you took us for a walk around, which was very generous of you. Thank you for that. No, no. But we were really excited to see the Puya. That was really what we were all all excited to see. So we were really happy to see that Puya that really sort of withstanded the, the winds. Can you tell us a little bit about that plant, what it looks like, what the family is, where it's native to, and just a bit of an overview of that plant? Yeah, certainly. So that, that's the plant we've been showcasing recently on some social media sites. So it's Puya chilensis, which is, it's got a yellow flower spike. The flower spike is probably about four metres tall and comes up from a, uh, a rosette of very sharp and unforgiving spiny sort of material. It's, it's a relation of the bromeliad, the Puya. We planted it in 2014 and it's flowered seven years later, which is fantastic for us. According to the readings, you know, it's between eight and 20 years for, for flowering. So we've, we've fluked that one, which is, which is great. Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's an unforgiving plant. I don't have too many volunteers that want to prune or uh, weed around it. So uh, you've got to put your uh, chain mail gear on to, to tackle the puya, which is, uh, which is a plus for us because I know it won't get stolen. But it, it's, it's got beautiful yellow, yellow flowers with orange sort of anthers, which against the blue sky, which we occasionally get in Waterville. It's, it's just a beautiful flower. And yeah, we've had a lot of interest from the, from the public. And unfortunately, after your visit, Daniel, that we did have a time-lapse camera trained on the Puya and someone decided they required that rather than, than myself. So they've stolen the time-lapse camera, which yeah. is very heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> it's heartbreaking because it just wasn't quite done, was it? No, no, I wanted to get the whole sort of life cycle of the plant in terms of coming up from bud, releasing the flowers and then going to seed. So, yeah, we've lost all that footage, oh. unfortunately. So the, the footage is stored within the camera? Yeah, unfortunately there was a, not a direct link back to somewhere. So, yeah, it was just an SD card in the time-lapse camera and they stole that. On we know I noticed that on the Friday afternoon, and the bracket was still in the tree. It looked like they'd snapped the snapped the camera off. And when I came back on Monday to have another look, they've actually came back for the bracket. So that's probably what you you call a comprehensive theft. <laughs> so they uh, they one. wanted the lot. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully they put it to good use. Well, at least someone gets to use it. Yes, that's right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, that sucks, mate. Oh no. <laughs> Spewing. But as a follower of yours on Twitter, you were sort of saying that people were really interested in it. And I think that's going to be down to you, mate, because I watched you posting about this flower or this inflorescence rather, sort of when it was just a bud. And, you know, you, you continuously kept reminding everybody on Twitter that this plant was special and that this flower was special and that it was developing. And I sort of got to watch it just as it started opening up and I just got more and more excited about it. So I knew I had to go and see it. And I think that as gardeners, we can all learn something from that with your approach to that because it sort of went, I don't know if it went viral or not, but I'd say it certainly caused a big buzz on Twitter. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Daniel. I think, uh, you know, my six followers were pretty excited about it. But uh... <laughs> You got the right sort of followers though, mate. So that's all that matters. <laughs> that's right. It's quality, not quantity, isn't that that's what they exactly say? That's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, no, it's 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 an interest of mine, and and I don't mind inflicting my interest on other people. So I thought it was a good way to capture, and as it turns up a good, uh, and it, as it turns out, a good backup from the time lapse camera. 
to yeah. take nearly daily photos of of the development of the puya, and you know we came up with a catch cry that you know it's it's booya puya time. Mm-hmm. But you know I'm sure my team got sick of me um, talking about the puya, and I'm sure other people did. But yeah, it's an unusual flower that you know it doesn't come along all the time. So I thought it was of interest to to share with other other people. And that passion is uh, it's contagious. Hopefully it is. I reckon. Mm. Hopefully. Yeah. So I guess. I wanted to switch up the conversation a bit now and ask, are you managing the decline of any trees on site? We certainly are. So we've, we've got a very large cypress that, that we're looking at installing what we'd like to call an exclusion zone around it. So to get vehicles and foot traffic away from it. So, and it's, it's a fancy term for pretty much a mulched area, which will have a couple of bollards in it with a bit of chain material around it, which is sort of a passive exclusion area. And we'll be able to underplant that as well. We've got a current example where we've done the same treatment under a, uh, a Dutch elm, which has got quite a few failure points. And we believe it's probably got about 15 maybe years left in it. And so we're managing that by that same sort of principle that we've excluded the public from, from picnicking under it. We've underplanted it. We've put replacement trees in and we're managing that sort of decline in the tree that way. So I really think we do old trees poorly in Australia. I think we don't see their worth. Mm. So hopefully we're able to showcase a bit of, you know, I'd like to think we're hopefully we can be a bit risk adverse and, and manage this into a decline and see how long we can hold it for. Like we had a uh, had an old manor gum in here which, which died unfortunately, but we've retained the structure of the trunk um, to the point where it's it's become a habitat tree. I'd like to think that we can do a bit more with that with with some of our other trees as well so rather than just removing them from the landscape and they're very very hard to replace we can still have a presence of those trees within the landscape and i think interpretation is very important in that as well because you can you can retain a tree but unless you explain why you're retaining the tree it just looks like a poor pruning job which Mm -hmm. is certainly not what we want to convey to the public so i think interpretation is yeah, is highly important in terms of managing historic landscapes and obviously managing tree decline. Absolutely. So there's so much value to dead trees. And in Australia, you're right, we just get told, get rid of the dead wood. If it's dead, rip it out, put something else in there. But yeah, we're really taking that dead wood for granted, aren't we? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the hollows and... Yeah, yeah. And even the structure of the tree itself. Oh, they're beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's just a matter of fine-tuning our interpretation or our, you know, I guess our understanding of how trees behave and, and what we can actually tolerate. I think tolerance is a is a massive thing that we seem to not have anymore. Mm. I deal a lot with street trees as well. So part of my team is in the gardens, part of my other team are in dealing with managing street trees and the amount of people that, yeah, just don't want trees in nature strips is, is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. I think a bit of education goes a long way too. Like out front of that managun there, you have a little poster sort of explaining what's going on there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, it's our responsibility to to sort of convey to, to visitors why we're doing and, and what we're doing. And I always like to make sure the team's available to answer questions. So if, you know, if you're in, in visiting Warnwall Botanic Gardens, you see a few people in fluoro, <laughs> please feel free to approach us, I think, you know, it's our responsibility to explain what we're doing in it. And also, from my team's point of view, I try and get them to invest themselves in what they're doing and knowing what they're doing and why they're doing it because menial tasks 
you know, the last thing you want to do, you want to be invested in what you're doing. And I think that's how you develop the passion for the horticulture and historic landscapes where we are. Absolutely. I want to touch on mentoring a little bit later. But as a maintenance gardener, I guess one of the things I see a lot is that people don't know how to keep plants separated. So you might plant two things next to each other and they end up encroaching into each other. And then the only thing you can do is turn them into into a kind of a you know, Frankenstein hedge with all these mismatchy <laughs> bits all through it. So how do you in Warrnambool keep the plants separated and looking individual? Yeah, we're probably we're probably not heavy on the maintenance in terms of yeah, hedge trimmers and things like that. I, I think our hedge trimmers might come out one day a year, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a matter of plant placement and also maybe just a bit of formative pruning when they're a bit younger in terms of where you want them to go and, and what you want them to do. I wouldn't say I'm I'm heavy on you know, making things look neat and tidy and things like that. I'm probably the other end of the spectrum in yeah. terms of allowing plants to be what they're supposed to be within reason. Obviously, if we're planting near a path and things like that, we've we've got restrictions in terms of people accessing it and, and things like that and, yeah, a bit, bit of risk management there. But, yeah, I think it comes down to knowing what your plant's going to do eventually so it's very easy to overplant and end up with a mixed match of things that are just growing into each other but yeah yeah I think initially you really need to understand what you're planting and, and what it's going to achieve yeah and I mean if something sort of cascades over onto the path let's embrace it mm. yeah yeah definitely so I should say our, our paths are about the size of the Hume Highway so <laughs> we don't have to we don't have to to prune I love looking at I think we've got some hookahs there that are just cascading over the path it looks fantastic, you know. It does some people's heads in to think, oh, those plants are, you know, they're, they're outside of the garden. But I think it's fantastic <laughs> that you know they're doing what they're doing, and they're yeah, it's it's nature at, at work. So mm. and it softens the path. Nothing worse than just looking at a stark bitumen mm-hmm. path. Yeah, it actually softens it. I think also, you know, it's a bit, bit of an experience that you know if you brush against the plant, how good's that? Like, um, yeah, you're actually. <laughs> You're actually, actually touching some of your, yeah, <laughs> some of your senses. Some of your senses, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's not meant to be a sterile environment. You're meant to interact and, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for it. If you love acopanthus or you hate them, doesn't matter. They look good cascading over a wall. And a lot of the mm. time what I'm told to do is prune the leaves off so it's a hard edge against the wall. And I just think it looks so much nicer letting them just do their thing over the wall. Definitely. Yeah, it softens the wall. It, it lets the plant express what it's supposed to be mm. rather than I think we've got this great culture. You can just look at how people maintain their lawns to an nth of their life. Mm. We have this control mechanism that we must control everything. Yeah, it drives me insane. Absolutely. <laughs> Billy Goodnick sort of mentioned that in episode 59 of this podcast, Crimes Against Horticulture. He talks about the janitorial mindset to horticulture, which I think was spot on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've got to respect the plant and, you know, you've got to love the plant for what it is. Yeah, yeah definitely. Like it's, um, yeah, yeah, I just don't think you can control everything. Mm. Yeah, if you want to, put plastic plants in. Yeah, that's right. That's how you get away with it, isn't it? But that's I guess, right. you know, we have to draw the line somewhere because we're not going to let pig fates do its thing, is it? Because it's going to crawl over the whole path. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's within sort of, yeah, within reason, I should say. Um, and certainly area is... You know, if they're highly used more than other areas, we may have to maintain them a bit, bit more strictly. But where we can, we'll, we'll allow the plants to express some sort of, yeah, idea of what they should be doing. Mm, fantastic. So one thing that struck me was that you had your whore team push mowing around a couple of beds. So even though the rider mower can do just as good of a job more quickly, 
well, probably not just as good of a job, actually. That's probably going to be what you're going to say. But <laughs> the rhino mower can certainly do it more quickly. So why would you have your horticultural team mowing around certain beds push, with a push mower? Because I'm saying what they eat for smoker, and I feel uh, obliged they must do some uh, <laughs> phys- physical work. No, no, no. <laughs> They'll kill me for that. No, i just like to make a point of difference between if we've got display beds or we've got particular trees that we've we've taken the time to mulch and, and put steel edging around, we'll actually mow around those with a push mower and a, a catch mower at a little bit lower height than what the what the ride on will do. And that point of difference really highlights that I'd I'd call that intensive horticulture that we're we're doing within that area. So yeah, I just like that point of difference. And also, yeah, from the team's point of view, they've put a lot of work into those areas and just to have that it's it's like that finished polish on the job. Mm -hmm. It just absolutely sets it off. Absolutely. And it draws your eye from anywhere you are that you can sort of see it within the site. You know, your eyes get drawn straight to those beds. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that's the yeah, I'm pleased it worked for you and uh, Kirsty, so that's good. Yeah, that's pretty groovy. So what else do you have your team do that may be contrary to how most people approach gardening and hort? Uh, I don't know whether it's contrary, but we sort of try and we have a weekly catch up. So this is where we do our, our walk around and our task allocation. So I'm really big on the team taking ownership of, of their work. So I'll give them an opportunity to walk me around, show me what they've done in the past week and also what needs to be done. So I really want them projecting ahead to think, oh, yeah, these things need to be done. We need to get onto this before it gets away from us. And so we'll spend probably an hour, an hour and a half walking around one day a week, looking at the gardens, getting involved in them, and then working out who's doing what and why we're doing it. So again, it's that big question of giving them purpose to why they're doing these tasks. Mm -hmm. The other thing I really enjoy is plant of the week. So one team member each week presents a plant to me and the other team member in terms of them. And what I've tried to do is is get them to do the plants that are flowering or the plants that the public might ask about. So they're well prepared and we're all well prepared to answer questions. So yeah, and they've built up quite a good portfolio of different plants that they they now know about. And I know with you, Daniel, if someone asks you, you know, do you know what that plant is? There's no better feeling than saying, yeah, well, I can actually tell you exactly what that plant is, where it's from, all that sort of stuff. And so it's a real boost and it's a real, it just gives me ultimate job satisfaction to see them grow into this role. And I, I would like to think that both my team, both members of my team are highly employable if they wanted to go elsewhere. Hopefully they don't, mm-hmm. but the skills they'll be able to take with them will set them up. So, yeah. So do you think that it's important to mentor the next wave of gardeners coming through? Oh, definitely. Yeah, as I've said, you've got to give them some sort of purpose to why they're doing the work. And if I can get someone invested in, you know, in a particular area of the garden or or things like that, it's fantastic because they'll want to come to work and they'll want to do what they do and they'll want to do it well, which is really important. We're, We're showcasing a botanic garden that's been here for 155 years. I don't want people going away thinking, well, that was a pretty crap experience. Mm. I want them going away thinking, geez, I'm going to tell my friends about these gardens and we're going to come back. Absolutely. And so, you know, the more time and energy you invest in the people, the people make the garden. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You're only as good as your team. And I'm fortunate that I have a really good port team and I have a really good tree team. So I'm very fortunate where I am. And that's probably why I've been here for 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. 
it sounds like you guys have a lot of time to be able to get things right and, you know, put that training into stuff and stuff like that. Whereas I think maybe a lot of our listeners who work in the commercial or the domestic sphere probably might feel like they're a little bit rushed, you know, like we have to get in and get the job done and then get out as quickly as we can so we can save everyone money and do it efficiently. Whereas mm. you guys, you've got a bit more freedom and time to sort of, yeah, push more around beds, you know, training and development and stuff like that, which I think is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, yeah, certainly we... um. I'd like to think we make the time too. So, yeah, it's a conscious decision because I can get dragged away to other meetings and, and things like that with my other roles within council. But I've actually, you know, I've marked out these times and I've made a commitment to the team to say, you know, Tuesdays it's our walk-around time and Thursday it's with the tree team. We sit down, we go through what, what we're up to, what we're hoping to do, things like that. So it's a matter of carving that time out. But we are mm. fortunate that we... You know, we're not on those deadlines that, you know, that contractors are, but I think it's important that we actually commit. Once we commit to something, you actually fulfil that commitment. Absolutely agree. And that's something that sort of wakes me up a little bit as well in the in the domestic sector because it makes me think like, oh, yeah, I should probably be spending more time on really explaining why we're doing things and stuff like that. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about your depot? Because most of the depots I've seen don't have a lot of love or care put into them because they're not for the public. But your one looks very different to other depots I've seen. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. It's probably just been the last three years, I guess, that we've made a conscious decision to plant some unusual plants in the depot. So it, it really came about because we'd, we'd lost some unusual palms or we didn't lose them, they got stolen. We got some plant material stolen from within the gardens, which really affected us all mm-hmm. um, in terms of how long it takes to source something, how long it takes to then then purchase it and work out where it's going and then have someone come along and steal it. It's just heartbreaking. So we decided we'd put a bit more effort into the to the depot and we'd plant some unusual plants there, which we'd then take cuttings or seed from. And so we'd use them as stock plants and then incorporate them in the gardens. But And it, it's it's just grown into a, um, yeah, it's a bit of a hidden treasure, our depot. So, And also my team enter this through the depot this way. So I'd like to think, you know, if they're coming through and seeing the plants, they're starting their day off you know, on the right sort of foot in terms of they're getting inspired before they've actually entered the smoko hut. They're thinking, well, how good are these flowers or, you know, look at those bees or whatever. And I think it's setting them up for the for the day ahead because I'm a firm believer is, is how you start your day is how you finish your day. So if you've got the craps when you walk in, you're going to have them all day. So I'd like to think, well, that's that's how I sleep at night. But I'd like to think that if you're setting yourself up for a, an environment that's conducive to, yeah, to learning and and enjoying what you do, you're on the right track. Yeah, speaking of starting the day on the right foot, shout out to Fishtails Cafe as well because that is a pretty good way to start your day, I reckon. (laughs) Definitely (laughs) Fishtails. They they keep me going. (laughs) It's kind of a bit like if you go into a restaurant and you can see into their kitchen and it's dirty, you don't really feel inspired. But if you see the kitchen and it's really clean and everything's orderly and they care about their environment, you want to eat there, and I think that having a, a nice-looking depot is much the same thing. Mm, thanks. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Like sometimes I'll I'll just spend you know a bit of the weekend in here just concentrating on the depot garden, just doing a few things, mm. and it's it's a good release too in terms of knowing that you you can grow these plants and they won't be number one stolen or trashed by the public. So it is quite a nice sort of nice area to have. So how do you stop people walking through the beds and sort of crushing everything? Yeah, it's a constant battle, really. During COVID, 
particularly during homeschooling, it was very difficult. The gardens were a great avenue for people to escape, I guess, when we're allowed out of our houses. But unfortunately, a lot of people escaped the gardens and just run amok. So <laughs> we've strategically placed a few prickly plants in, in front of border to uh, passively deter people from entering the garden bed. We've actually used metal hoops as well, so just a form bar which has been bent and then welded together. So it's a clear indicator that, yeah, you don't enter this area and strategically placing a few seats and things like that as well. So I'm not really in favour of, of signs that say keep out, keep out, keep out. I yeah, I just think it sends the wrong message. You, 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 you're concentrating on that negative thing. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think that people are, are respectful enough if they're coming to the gardens that they'll realise that you know the garden beds aren't for walking through and, and crushing things. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a constant battle and we're always reviewing where we're putting things and why we're putting things. Also, caging is a massive thing for us. Aesthetically, it looks atrocious, but we cage 99% of the things that we put in the shrub beds to stop them getting trashed. And after two years or three years, depending on the growth habit of the plant, we'll remove those cages. Yeah, so that's that's the way we can ensure that they'll they'll establish and yeah and work well within the garden bed. Hmm. So you focus a lot on perennial plants, I noticed. Yeah, we do. Uh, we do a mix of, of perennial plants, and then where we can, we can try and put some replacement trees in. Uh, we're working in a in the palm precinct at the moment putting a few strategic palms in that fortunately we've been able to source through a palm broker, So, which is great. So half the battle is is actually acquiring these plants and working out how we can get them and things like that. So, And that's that's where the heartbreaking thing comes in too, is if you know there's there's one plant there I think we spent about eight years trying to get and then we, we've put it in and someone's come along and snapped it off. And fortunately we took some cuttings and we're able to grow it again. But just that, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. you do spend a lot of time investing in in purchasing or procuring those plants and then you think planting out's the easy bit but uh, it's actually getting them established yeah i mean it's a public garden so yep. yeah unfortunately you're gonna have to deal with people yeah yeah that's yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's right I, I did work a job for a few years where i was in a in a private garden it was a three acre garden and yeah, sometimes I think, oh, it'd be great to be back there where you can plant things and you know they're going to be there the next morning. But who's it for? Yeah, true. I, I do like the public aspect that people can approach you, they can ask you questions, they can learn different things about the gardens and yeah, and what they can do within their own gardens. So I think that's a big role of botanic gardens as well, and particularly regional botanic gardens, is providing advice to people and, and showcasing some plants that, that they can grow at home. A lot of people think of pesticides as just being a normal part of the garden. I'd like to know what are some of the things that you've done to deal with or not deal with pests that you've encountered? Yeah, this this probably comes back to my, you know, allowing things to spill over on the path and things like that too. We don't hardly use any insecticides, pesticides at all, unless there's a massive sort of outbreak. But again, if there was a massive outbreak, I'd be thinking, why? What have we done different? And is this plan appropriate within this mm-hmm. location? So we're probably slow to act in terms of spraying things, or we definitely don't do preventative spraying. If if anything, we we might do a bit of 
contact spraying. But we're very mindful of the, the environment that's around us in terms of how many insects we have, how many bees, how many birds. Again, I, I may be described as a lazy gardener, but I'd like to think the ecosystem that we've developed is looking after itself. Obviously, you know, if we've got high humidity or things like that, you know, powdery mildew might be an issue on certain things, but I, I don't worry about it. I, I won't spray for it. Well, yeah, mm. if we need to prune something out, we can prune something out. But yeah, I'll let it take care of itself, really. Totally. And you got ducks there too for the slugs? Yeah, we've got ducks that, yeah, they're probably the the best fed ducks in uh, <laughs> in uh, in Victoria, I think. So everyone grows up feeding the ducks and, and things like that. So yeah, they, they're certainly free range as well. You'll find them all over the uh, all over the gardens. So, and they're the other things we need to be mindful of in terms of, you know, what, what it, what's using the gardens at night when we're not here. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'd, we'd have a, um, an amazing array of animals that wander through the gardens at night. So, yeah. When I was there with my wife, Kirsty and I sort of noticed, uh, and you pointed out as well, when the arborists were chipping, you know, you see all the flying foxes running out of the tree. And obviously those flying foxes pollinate a wide range of trees in a huge area. Yeah, they've, I think it's up to 30 kilometres they can fly within for pollination. So they'll head out to the Fram Forest. They'll raid backyard fruit trees, which is always interesting because <laughs> sometimes I'll get calls and, and they'll say, you're bats, and be very aggressive in terms of that. And I'll say, cheekily, I'll say, what number bat was it? And they'll say, what do you mean? And I'll say, well, they're my bats, so I've got them numbered. If you can tell me what number it was, I'll, I'll have a stern word to them. But yeah, it's, uh, they are massive pollinators within the environment. They are protected species and we do have a colony within the gardens. You know, again, similar to agapanthus, you either hate them or love them. We've developed some interpretation around the bats. We've actually got some state government funding for, for irrigation for the bats for when we you know, had that one hot day in Warrnambool. But yeah, so we, we've, we've adjusted to the bats as they're part of the natural environment. So yeah, we've uh, now got a bat colony. I think our numbers at their peak were about 3,000. Wow. On the site, um, just on your site? Yeah, just wow. on our site. That's so massive. It is massive. But if you talk to Bendigo Botanic Gardens, they're managing like fifteen to 20,000 bats. So where do they live? Do they have to have hollows or do they just chill hanging upside down on the branches? Yeah, they just chill in the in the trees and we, we get some incidental damage. So when they when they fly out and they fly back in, we believe that the foliage is getting stripped from from their claws as they attach to the to the branches. So some of our trees are showing some wear and tear. But yeah, they're uh, they sort of keep to themselves. On the really hot days, that's when we have to run additional irrigation for them because they will actually come down the trunk of the trees and seek some sort of shelter and, and that that shade sort of area. So, yeah, and we work closely with the wildlife people in terms of if we find any babies or any discarded uh, grey-headed flying foxes, they come along and, and take them off for care. Dr John Martin talked a lot about sort of flying foxes and moisture and humidity and stuff like that in episode 27. So I'd urge our listeners to go and listen to that one if you'd like to hear more about flying foxes. But is there any way that you'd be able to sort of sum up your overall vision and what you're aiming to achieve with the gardens? Oh, tough one, Daniel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you can picture someone that's, you know, a clear thinker and you'd probably draw a straight line, <laughs> my, my line would be squiggly 
and continuous. So that sort of gives you a snapshot into, yes. into my mind. We are loosely working to a management plan in terms of, of, of the gardens, which will entail replacing some trees in the Pine Edom. And we've worked very hard over the last 10 years to put some important stock back into that Pine Edom. So I was fortunate that I made contact with a, a very experienced and very knowledgeable person in um, Dunkeld in Western Victoria who used to import a lot of pine and Quercus material. So Bill Funk, and he, uh, he has a massive collection of pines that can no longer be imported into Australia because of quarantine laws. And so we were able to source some material from him and some stock from him. And we've you know, supplementarily planted in the Pine Eatum. So in the future, we'll have a, a fantastic collection there. My vision is probably to maintain access for the public and really push the envelope in terms of what we're doing as a, as a public garden. So trying to, like I'd love to get some public art in the gardens as well, just to interface between the cultures of, you know, horticulture and, and artists and things like that, just to get people into the gardens. I love people that come into the gardens because they've then got an association with that garden. Hopefully it's our garden because I think the more people that visit, the more strong links we're going to have with the community. And, yeah, I'm, I'm not for this sort of elitist garden where, you know, you come in here, you've got to walk on the path, you can't walk on the grass, you can't picnic on the grass. I think it's about engaging with people and, and making it a positive experience. And also botanical diversity in the gardens is really important for me, just to showcase as many plants as we can that will grow successfully. Continuing Guilfoyle theme of, you know, large foliage plants and just that diversity of foliage and colour and things like that. So the Warrnambool Botanic Gardens used to, used to have a, a massive collection of annuals around the garden beds and in the display beds over time we've 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 reduced those to pretty much minimal or zero and i'd argue that we've got more color in the gardens mm. now through foliage and plant selection than you would ever have from just having an annual planting it was unsustainable in terms of budget and and labor yeah. just unrealistic to have that continue so we've got a couple of beds display beds we might run some annuals in but if not, we're, we're running perennials and, and doing other things and showcasing some other plants. Absolutely. As a gardener myself, I find annuals to be nice, but I wouldn't want them to be the focus because you, you're just not like, yes, pretty flowers are beautiful. Of course they are, you know, bright, <laughs> bright colourful yeah. flowers. Of course they're beautiful. But let's face it, you're going to miss out on those perennial plants that have, you know, interesting shaped leaves, yeah. um, interesting colour leaves, just different shapes and stuff like that. I just think it's so much more exciting. Yeah, definitely. We were, I was um, taking a tour around recently and we were looking at one of the beds there and it was striking the just the amount of foliage variation and the colour variation. And the more you looked at it, the more you could see. And I think that's what people need to do is actually have a good look. Mm. It was interesting. I talked about our palm precinct the other day. I had someone come through and they're obviously not big palm fans. And they said, why are you planting more palms? And I said, we want a palm collection. We've we've actually got an area which we've named the palm precinct and things like that. And he said, well, they all look the same. And I said, well, you mm. might need to have a closer look yes. to see the differences. And then he said, why don't you just grow roses? And I counted oh. to 10. And I said, <laughs> if you want to see roses, go to the cemetery. But talk about all the plants looking the same. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly right. So anyway. That ended our conversation and we, we both went <laughs> off. But uh, 
anyway, I, I believe I was polite but direct. Yeah, no, but you know, there was one palm in particular in there, you know, a little shady spot. I can't remember what I can't remember what it was called, but it was quite spectacular. Like the the palm fronds were really interesting. They had sort of I wouldn't even know how to explain it, but almost like the the leaflets on the frond were almost palmate in in themselves. Ah, yeah, the carotia, I think it was the palm. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. In bed eight, so that's that's a recent planting, and that was purchased through our palm broker. So yeah, we're hoping in time that's just putting on a new frond at the moment. So uh, yeah, that'll it's exciting, and and just to have that variation in foliage, shape, color, yeah, it's striking. And you're lucky as well with all the different angles that you can look at it because of the slope. You know. Beds look completely different when you're up close to them or when you're looking down at them or when you're looking up at them over across the pond. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, the classic Guilfoyle design in terms of those view lines that, that he's created and hopefully we've maintained. And also the, the bit where you can't see the garden. You can't see the entirety of the garden from any one spot. It's hidden by those big shrub beds. So you have to explore the garden to see the different aspects of the garden. And I think it's a real adventure to walk through the garden and and get things revealed as you walk in different directions. What do you mean by a Guilfoyle garden? Ah, sorry, yes. So William Guilfoyle, a a famous designer who did a Melbourne Botanic Gardens, took over from Von Muller in the Melbourne Botanic Gardens and did a lot of work in in Western Victoria as well. So, yeah, I'd encourage people that want to know a bit more about designing to just google up William Guilfoyle and find out his extensive array of works. So John there's always one question I like to ask at the end of every episode and it doesn't have to stay on topic. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Yeah go uh, go to your local garden Um, whether it's a, a park or a botanic garden a lot of people do put a lot of work into presenting these areas and I, I think sometimes you know maybe we're too busy in life we just walk through take a bit of time to wander around and admire what people do and and the skill level also I think in horticulture sometimes people can dismiss it as a hobby rather than a career mm-hmm. and I'm really a great advocate for for the TAFE system although mm-hmm. it's been somewhat gutted I think the TAFE system is really good at churning out quality people with quality skills and yeah, there's there's a lot can be said for for, for horticultural at, horticulture as a career, and there's so many opportunities to you know I was I've fortunate enough to I've done some work overseas in different gardens and things like that, and your skills are so highly transferable that yeah it's just really encouraging and, and just really a great confidence boost to know that you know for instance in 2019 I worked at Kew Gardens for four weeks in England and. I'd like to think I was able to hold my own and it was great to be an Australian there and they very rarely get Australians um, working in Kew Gardens just because of the, the, the effort it takes to get there, So, um, which, which was fantastic and I, I learned a lot. And, but, yeah, as I said, all my skills that I'd developed over close to 30 years were, were highly transferable to, to those gardens. Absolutely. I think that's wonderful and I hope that our listeners are listening to that because... I reckon if you're passionate about it, that's the number one prerequisite because if you're passionate, you can learn and you're willing to do the hard work to sort of do what it takes to get to that level. And I want to tell listeners, I reckon a lot of us, just like me, you know, we're sort of sitting around waiting for what we're passionate about. And for me, one day, you know, I got into lawn mowing and and gardening and stuff like that just because it was just seemed like a job that I could enjoy doing. And 
I think you can make a decision to be passionate about something too. And that can really help your career if you just make the decision, okay, so I've, I'm a gardener now, I have all this experience. I'm going to choose to be passionate about it and just double down and, yeah, do what it takes to be successful. Yeah, definitely. Passion's the key. And that's that's something I'd like to think, yeah, that I look for people in, I look for in people and also try and develop in people. You know, some people might think I'm, <laughs> I'm too enthusiastic, um, but... Yeah, I'd like to think that, you know, you're spending a lot of time at work. You might as well enjoy it. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Thanks so much for coming on the show, John. Great, Daniel. Thanks for the opportunity. And I'm really pleased that you were able to to visit the gardens. And, yeah, I even noticed that um, one of our photos has made it onto your Twitter page in terms of the the, um, profile pic. So It did. Did you like that? Yeah, yeah. I had an old image of the... Actually, that's something we should have talked about was the uh, ficus macrophyllus, but oh, oh yeah. my goodness, aren't they glorious? So I had one photo of, of a ficus macrophylla Morton Bay fig, but yeah, I replaced it with yours because it was much better. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. I'm happy with that. <laughs> Thanks, John. Talk to you soon, mate. Good on you, Daniel. Thank you. If you're looking for a weekend getaway from Melbourne, make plans to visit the Warrnambool Botanic Gardens. You can see the 12 apostles on the way there, stay in an Airbnb overnight in Warrnambool or Port Ferry, and visit the gardens in the morning after brekkie at Fishtails Cafe. Who knows, you might even see a couple of mad keen gardeners in fluoro that you can say good day to and ask a few questions. Check out our back catalogue and keep this party going with more episodes featuring people that work with plants. <laughs>